and welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Pugwash and Shine On Novel Jefferson from the Almond Tea album from, I think, 1999 now. I've got Pugwash's Thomas Walsh here, who's created some of the finest tracks of the last 20 years, and we're here to celebrate the wonderful music that he's made over this period. A huge welcome, Thomas. Hiya, Jason. That's a lovely introduction. Some of the best of the last 20 years, I'll take that. I think the proof will be in the pudding here in, in these, uh, these 10 tracks. I do tracks. like pudding. Yes, I, I do like pudding. <laughs> I'm actually having a sort of a pudding now because I'm having a cup of tea with the... And, and relaxing, having a chat with you. So it's a pleasure to be here, Jason. Thanks so much for asking me. I'm a big tea man, so that's always a good way to start. Good. We kicked off with Shine on Novel, Jefferson. So was that your the first album that came out under the Pugwash name then? Yeah. Um, the debut was kind of like, it's it, it, it's so late. If you look at my, well, if you know that I'm 52 now, came out in 99, you can do the maths. I was 20, 28, 29, 30 recording it. And because I did everything arseways, you know, backwards. I was a drummer since I was a kid, since I was a, a baby. And I loved drums and I drummed just in covers bands, my brother's bands and all this kind of silly stuff. But of course, you know, getting to fall in love with Jeff Lynne, which I did at a very early age, and, and of course the Beatles and all those kinks and all the incredible songwriters of the world, Barry Gibb, all those things. I became interested in it, well, sort of obsessed with becoming a songwriter. And apart from Phil Collins, which is the classic drummer, songwriter person, and a few others, Jellyfish, of course, later on. But mm. you don't have to be a drummer in a band. You can do what you want, you know. And then again, I thought, if I want to do what I want, I'm not going to be able to get a band. But I love the band moniker. You know, I love having a band. I don't like to be Thomas Walsh. So I just decided, right, I have to start writing songs. So I got a little shed. I got a little four track. I got some gear on higher porches and did all that stuff. And cutting through the 90s, I worked with Andy White, who's a kind of a very well-known Belfast singer-songwriter uh, through the years. I worked with Andy for a good few years, and that got me into the business almost because I met Kim Fowley through Andy. And, uh, you know, then I got became friends with dear Kim, you know, the dreaded word Kim Fowley, the dreaded name, but Kim was a lovely man to me. You know, he was a lovely man. Had a lot of demons in his closet and all this silly stuff, but... But it did, regardless of that, I learned a lot from people like that. And so I kept doing other things, apart from doing my own thing. So in the mid-90s, a friend of mine from the band Lear, Robert Malone, who's now the bass player with David Gray for the last 20-odd years, he said, come down and support us, Wally, because Wally is my nickname over here. And he says, come down and support us in Whelan's. And because there's a guy coming from our label, and he, you should definitely sign with them. And I was saying, well, I'd love to sign with anybody because I'd love to make a record. So I went down, I played got to know Michael from Velo Records and we became lifelong friends. Great man. Always put his money ahead of anything, you know, like his living, eating. So he was a real great guy for the Irish music scene and uh, much underappreciated, but I love him. And uh, he got a few bob together to help me make the first album, which is Almond Tea. And it became a long process because we did it in friends' houses and we did it on ADAP machines. If anybody has any idea what ADAP machines are, they're very archaic ways of recording, even in this day and age. Even though they're digitally kind of, well, they're tapey digital. First of its kind. Yes. And the machines were extremely, extremely pernickety. Let's throw that word in for today. Uh, they would just break down whenever they wanted to. And we had to have four of them running for the final mix because we had three that were masters. And we had to have a time code one or whatever it was. You know, it was 
just all. So it became a very long process. I think it was an 18 day mix because the machines kept. So that, that's what it be. And so it became this big labor of love thinking that, right, if I ever do one record, it was going to be this. And threw the kitchen sink at it, and which was a walking title. And then it became what it became. And then I wanted to get it out in the 90s because I thought, you know, if I don't get something out in this century, I want to have got a record out at the same time as the Beatles or Kinks and all these great bands. So, um, so I got it out in September 99 and it got great reviews in Ireland. That was the thing, you know. A lot of people got behind it, which helped me. So that was the basics of Almond Tea, really. I read that you'd actually built up quite a collection of, of songs by the 90s. Oh, yeah. I mean, the the, the, the newest track for Almond Tea uh, was Always Be, which is a, a ballad kind of track. And I think I wrote that in about 97. But all the ones leading up are from like 1991, 92, 93. For Almond Tea, that was, I mean, like showing on Nova Jefferson that you played, I have the demo from, I think, 93, 92, 93. And, uh, and of course, I, I really like that song now because it sounds quite cool, actually. Uh, a lot of the stuff is harsh on Almond Tea because it was so crudely recorded. But we, there's a nice bit of warmth to, to that particular track. Mm. And I like it because I don't write songs like that anymore. I don't write songs really about fictional people. I used to love, I mean, all my demos between 1990 and 1997, say, are all about like Mr. Henderson's shed, <laughs> you know, Johnny O'Reilly's tree and all that kind of silly stuff, which I love. Uh, I love to write, but then you get older and, of course, life seeps into your, into your writing and you have to, I have to write about what's going on to me. But, but I think with Pugwash, the, the, the problem has been as well that a lot of people just think it's a jolly song because I've, I've released songs, like even It's Nice to Be Nice, uh, has quite a bit, it does, not a dark undertone, but it's like a bit of a, it's light and shade going on there. And there's other songs I've released with kind of happy sounding music, but the, the lyrics been quite deep. So so I kind of like that juxtaposition of things. But uh, but in for Almanac then, I, I, it was mainly all new stuff. Oh, well, apart from the track Anyone Who Asks, uh, which... Which ended up on a on a Colin Farrell movie, Pride and Glory. But it was apples from Almanac that caught the ear of uh, the great Andy Partridge. Yeah, it was it was a, the track Apples really. And um, what happened was, uh, because we Almanac had died on its arse because the company died, Michael's company folded, and he had to give it up. He just had to, you know, he was pumping too much money out, not getting anything back in, and Almanac became this instant collectible because it didn't get to the, it got to. Vet Terror Records and a few other retailers, but this is even before online, you know, real heavy online stuff. This is 2002. And then, of course, it became this kind of a, so, it, you know, it's, it's sold for 250 quid in original copies. And I only have two or three in my collection. But now your material is available on the streaming services, which is, it's not the perfect way, but at least it's a way that your music can get out there and people can appreciate it. Yeah. I might as well say for the record on The Strange brew podcast because i've said it online and stuff but i mean i had a real hatred of spotify and i mean it's not the, it's not the nicest thing hmm. for any artist spotify even even the beatles and pink floyd battled against it because they weren't paying the legends of music yeah. anything you know so they even had to fight to get their millions but even on, on the scale of the beatles and the scale of pink floyd and stones now they still paid them pittance you know considering but of course it's what it can materialize for you, you know. It's what it can yeah. what it can get you exposure was, I suppose. But when it comes to artists like me on the very lower rung, you know, looking up at the first rung, 
um, on the ladder. It, it, it can be really debilitating because, you know, it, it just feels like they're taking it and they're just taking it. And they're putting it on their streaming service. And people are enjoying it. So you think, well, maybe they could send me something for that. That's, yeah. But they don't, of course. But the thing is, because of the world now, it's like 20 years since 9-11. I remember it so well. I was traveling at the time as well. And the world changed on its axis on that day. And I remember that as a seismic shift. And now I've lived through lockdown as well, like we both have. It's a huge seismic shift. But it's also, this is almost a seismic shift that is going to have a lasting effect on things like the arts and things like that. Because people want to sit at home now and just listen to stuff. And people don't really want to go out. People don't want, you know, there's all that has come into the psyche now. So I had to just give in to Spotify because during lockdown, I really wanted to listen to stuff. Yeah just without having to go through my crates of collectible stuff from all my vinyl and get up and down. I was in this dark quagmire. And that's and in a way, that's what Spotify did. Spotify got me out of that because of what it is, because of the, the easiness of it. And what I did was I said, right, I just have to get my stuff up. So I spoke to a friend of mine, Colin Querney, and he said, look, this drug kid gets it up there really quick. And I, I really didn't know how to get stuff up on streaming services. So I, I read up on it and yeah, that's the best way. They've been brilliant.
For many people, especially over in Ireland, It's Nice to Be Nice is, is one of your tracks that people uh, most associate you. Yeah, it's a really big song for me here. I mean, around the world in my circles. It's wonderful when a song does that. And, you know, I'm not going to say, oh, I hate playing it or whatever. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't even play it anymore. So someone else gets inside me. There's plenty of room for someone to get inside me. But if someone else gets inside me and plays the shagging, I just play it. It's almost like, okay, here we go again. Sometimes I play it and I go, well, it's actually not bad. You know, I like the way that goes, such and such. Other times I've played it and I haven't even remembered I've just done it. You know, the usual, you go into your zone and you just play it. But it is one of those songs that kind of, it's 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 not of me anymore. You know, it's, it's there are some songs I still play where I go, I really want to get this one across, even though it's 20 years old and I, it's been out on four compilations. But I still want people to hear this one because this uh, this hasn't, you know. Yeah, but I mean, it's got that sort of Beach Boys as well as a bit of a High Llamas uh, feel to it. But it actually reached uh, Brian Wilson, didn't it? Well, that's the big thing, yeah. Well, uh, what happened around 98, 97, 98 was that a friend of mine, Duncan Maitland, uh, who was in the Picture House band, and you know, he went on to work with me for a few albums. He brought over the Smiles sessions, uh, which I'd never heard. Hmm. Excuse me. Obviously, I had Beach Boys stuff. I was very late to, to the classic Beach Boys. I, I knew Beach Boys singles, of course, and I had a couple of compilations and stuff. And I knew some of the later stuff sounded, well, you know, God only knows, and, and wouldn't it be nice and all these they're incredible songs. And you kind of go, okay, but there's still that, well, there's the ballad of God only knows, which is beautiful, but like, wouldn't it be nice, still has that kind of surfiness. Mm. I didn't know anything about the small stuff, really. And he brought over this bunch of stuff, and I literally... Flipped, you know, I, I couldn't get over it. So, I roughly the same time, I heard Nomads on RT radio, Dave Fanning played it, and he didn't say the name until about four songs later. So, I had to listen. I was in a crowd of people at a party, like a get together. We used to have these get togethers every Monday, the Monday nightclub, and I was like, Shut up, <laughs> everyone's getting stoned and pissed. And I was like, Shut up, I want to hear what that banjo song was <laughs> on the radio. And it was the High Lamb, of course. Next day, I went out and bought. Hawaii, literally, and they've been a, such an influence on me. Stuff, so, you know, there will be the odd song that will that will permeate through because you know these people get you through tough times. You play their music and it gives you a feeling, and if it gives you a feeling, it goes into your system. That's what I think. It worked the other way in that it managed to get through to Brian Wilson. Well, that's the thing. You asked me a question, and I didn't even fucking answer it, Jason. <laughs> yes, around the time of the whole Beach Boys thing, Brian asked to meet me in Dublin to David Leaf, who was his manager at the time. And that's how I got to know all the Beach Boys guys, but that's when I met Brian. And I still can't get over the email to say that Brian Wilson would like to meet you. And I, I was living in a bed sit in a place called Crumlin. Uh, living in a bed sit there, you know, it, it's a, it's they're, they're working class areas of Dublin. And, you know, they're not tough. They're beautiful, beautiful people. But, you know, you don't expect to be getting an email to MySpace to go meet Brian Wilson, which I did. So uh, 
I couldn't go. I was drinking at the time, so I was pissed when I read it. So I remember ringing people in America who I knew because the time zone, they were still up because it was about four o'clock in the morning. I fell in drunk and I had to talk to someone. I don't even know who I rang. So I did. I went to meet him and I got this ridiculous smile, kind of pet sounds, pass, special thing. And, and he just said, are you the guy? Are you the nice, me nice guy? And I said, yeah. And he goes, that's a great song. And that was it, really. I just told him what he meant to me. And yeah, it was um, very, you know, he is a spiritual man. I believed that from meeting him because something happens. A light goes on in the man. And it almost like, a, you know, you hear those lights, like a Monty Python, oh, and lights come on. There's that kind of feeling off him. It's really weird. Brian Wilson is just a shining, just an, an organism of specialness. I don't know what it is. It's so weird. <laughs> but he's a beautiful man. And, you know, and I've done the World Honey Shows in LA. I've done four or five of them now, and I'm, I'm part of the setup, which I love so much. They're beautiful people. And it's a great charity for a great cause for autism. And I sang with Carney Wilson. I sang Field Flows with Carney a few years back. And, you know, Brian knew about it all and all. But it's just special to be in that little circle for a little bit, you know. It's really humbling for me.
the vinyl release of 11 Modern Antiquities. And I think that might be the, the last of the, the albums to be released on vinyl. Yeah. You got to actually collaborate with Andy Partridge in song on At The Sea. Yeah, At The Sea on 11 Modern Antiquities was, it was basically a, a track that, because there's a couple on that on 11 Modern Antiquities, is my genius. Uh, so what we, what we used to do was, when we got to know each other, because hmm. just going back to that previous question a, a bit back, uh, I, Andy fell in love with Apples, the song, which is on Almanac. And he played it on BBC Six Music and a, a few other places when he was guesting. Because I think he, I think he probably had a vision that he was going to sign me for Ape, you know, at the time, which I didn't have a clue about. But I, I'd gotten in touch with Dave Gregory Force, through a friend of mine here in Ireland, Peter Fitzpatrick. And uh, Peter had worked, a, a very big guy in Microsoft and a big music fan. So he'd asked Andy to do a song for Microsoft and went over to meet him and he did some recording, whatever it was, for a Microsoft website. And Andy did a song, Born Out of Your Mouth, which is on Fuzzy Warbles. And it's an incredible song. I, mean, I love that song. I love all this stuff. But anyway, during the time Peter was in Swindon, he went for a dinner with Andy and Dave came along, uh, Gregory. So Peter left with the details of, you know, Dave and Andy, the usual stuff. And I got in touch with Peter and, and said, uh, I'd love to do some, finally get some uh, string arrangements done on the new record because we're starting a new label, the one that released Jollity, which be, which nice to be nice is on. And there was a bit of money there. And I says, I, I asked the, the manager at the time and the head of the label guy, I said, would you be up to, could I ask if I could get some string arrangements and we could possibly see how we could get them done? Said, yeah, go for it. And all. It was great. I had the green light. And I said to Peter, would you mind contacting Dave? And he says, yeah, I'll contact him. He says, yeah, but he's told me that he only works on stuff he likes. I said, well, look, all I can do is send you the demo. So I sent him some rough acoustic demos. And thankfully, Dave got back and said he loved what he heard. And that's how I got to work with Dave on Jollity and become really great friends with Dave. And through Dave, Andy heard Pugwash. That's pretty much how it started. Andy didn't hear Apples in 2002. He heard it after Dave gave him a copy, I think, of Earworm, maybe it was. But that's it. And so Andy would start ringing then. Andy got details from me, and Andy would ring, and we'd ring a lot. That's why I wasn't in the time he rang me. I left a birthday song because it was my birthday, and the birthday song became Anchor on the Jonathan album because the verse was he, – he left a message saying, Thomas Walsh is the birthday boy. You know, happy birthday to... And it was the bears. I ended up taking that as the bears for anger and doing a co-write because I wanted a co-write. But then when we officially started the co-write, we did some writing for 11 Modern Antiquities and we got my genius out of it. And I think Here We Go Round Again, which I didn't do till, till Olympus Sound. But also the, the big one was at the sea. And it's totally Andy's melody going... Da, 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 da. That's Andy. Uh, and then all the rest of the silliness is me. But then I just said, it's so manic and so silly what we've done with the recording. I said, would you do it on it? And he says, yeah, I'd love to. So we did kazoos and swanny whistles. And he did this ridiculous lead break on his little acoustic thing, like his little nylon string guitar, I think it was. And it's just ridiculous. So good. It makes a sound. And of course, he did two versions. And the other one is like Frank Zappa. I mean, the one that I kept sounds like Eric Clapton. Sounds like normal blues licks. 
compared to what he gave gave for the other one. So one day I'll I'll definitely get the other version out, uh, the alternative lead breakout that'll definitely come out some some stage. So yeah, I have to say, and it'd be and it'd be we just thought it was great. Also, um, we did a video for it, which was great fun. And I was hanging around a lot with Neil at the time, Neil Hannon, because I got to know Neil a couple of years before that, and Neil was at all the sessions for Eleven Modern Technique. He's played all the piano and all the keyboards, so he's plays the piano on here and a lot of other things. And he's he's on many, he's on all the album pretty much. So that's a very lucky thing for me to be able to have somebody as good as him playing. Yeah. But that's what we were doing on the side of that was writing the first up with Lewis Method album.
but also on the album 11 Modern Antiquities is here. Mm-hmm. And we talked about Dave Gregory, but that's a song in particular where you really get to hear what Dave adds to a track. And, you know, it starts off very simply, yeah. but then it has the scale and grandness that, that Dave helps to bring. Yeah, and I pinch myself every time I get to work with Dave because, you know, he's one of the... I mean, a lot of them are in... X, I mean, the three of them, three of the most underrated musicians in the world are in XTC. Yeah. You know, because they're three of the most incredible musicians you'll ever meet uh, with, with Dave. And, you know, mention all these kind of incredible guitar parts he's done over the years. And, because his rhythm lead playing on Black Sea alone. It's just So to me, you know, working with Dave, I can I never underestimate it. I never take it for granted. And on here, I had I did have this little tiny bit of the string melody, which I sang to Dave, I think, which is... I think that was the only part I knew because I sang it as part of the melody. I still do when I play it acoustically. And um, but everything else he filled in beautifully. And of course, it's stunning. But I remember we got the stuff back from, uh, you know, the foils back on discs. And he just says, oh, by the way, I sent a separate disc of, of a lead break you, you may be interested in. Um, I just thought I'd do it. I just did it. Don't worry about it. Don't even have to listen if you don't want. And I was like, fucking hell. We put it on and me and Keith just sat there. I won't say almost in tears, but emotionally shocked because it was so beautiful. He'd done this P. Ham, George Harrison, Todd Rundgren, Amalgam, Slide kind of thing. It just brought the song, just lifted it up in that you know section. It was so beautiful. I remember getting back to him and saying, don't you ever fucking say don't listen to something when it's that amazing. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, that song has a lot of great Dave in it and there's things like uh, Black Dog on Jollity and and Poles Together, tracks like that, where Dave shines as well, where he's just doing little bits, as he says, but they're huge, you know? Mm. His vision is, of sound is really quite huge, uh, even though he does very subtle things. And that's a great example of XTC, really. Hugeness in very... Normal situations, really, but um, yeah, I love the man, and he's he's a genius, and there's no other word.
we've been talking about 11 modern antiquities and you mentioned that you got involved with and got to know Neil Hannon in that time. Yeah. Was it from working or, or playing with him or getting to know him that Duckworth Lewis method, the concept behind that started to form? Yeah, well, well basically what happened was I wanted to write a Christmas song for a long time. So I, I was asked one year to, to pen a song for Irish epilepsy. A friend of mine in Ireland, Rick O'Shea, who's a DJ, very well-known DJ and uh, author and book enthusiast and stuff. He's a, he was a spokesperson because he has um, epilepsy himself. And I went to a meeting and I said, look, I have an idea of the song, which I had for a while, which was Tinsel and Marzipan, the song. So I just thought, OK, well, then we're going to do this finally and this is going to be exciting. But... Let's be honest, it'll only do well if you get a couple of names on it, you know. And of course, it's Ireland and it's me. So I had a few contacts and stuff. But what, what happened was Graham Linehan, would you believe, had had lost his mobile phone. Now, Graham, certain Graham and, and the band, I'll go back a long time, because we played at Graham's wedding uh, to Helen Serafinowitz in 2003. And we got to know all the comedy guys, you know, at the wedding and got to, uh, lifelong friends of a lot of them. And of course, got to know Graham well and I was on his mailing list but that what happened was we weren't speaking a lot but he sent out this mass email and said I've lost my phone here's my new number usual stuff and of course he this is the days before extreme privacy <laughs> but of course the whole list of his all his friends list was in the hole but I remember just looking at it one night and I seen uh, I seen Neil Hannon's email and I went well he'd be really cool to get on this song and I had met him at Graham's wedding and we spoke about ELO for quite a long time. He's an ELO fan. So I said, well, this is kind of, I'm making this into a Wizard Roy Wood ELO-ish type song. So I sent him an email and he kindly got back and then he said, come over to my house. He was living in Dublin at the time. And I popped over with Dara, who was with the label at the time. And I remember we, Dara was bigger than me, taller, and a, a stocky man, a rugby man. But I was like still this size and fucking whatever. He answered the door, Neil's like five foot, whatever, and seven stone and weight or something. And he looked behind the door and he was like, hello. <laughs> like, hello, Neil, it's Thomas and Darren. Oh, yes. And he had to control his dog. But then we went in. We had a really good laugh and a good fun. And, and he said nice things about my music. Said he'd listened to it and it was kind of the only music he kind of thought was, that's cool. You know, Irish stuff that he's given, whatever. Mm. So... We agreed that he'd come to the studio and do the Tinsel and Marzi Pan, which he did, and he was brilliant. And then on the way home, he just, the radio was on and we were lifting him home. And I thought, well, it's good to know Neil and we might hook up again, you know, whatever. But he just said, sorry, Thomas, for a second, can you just fire that radio up? There's some cricket scores on the radio. And I went, well, yeah, I'll listen as well because I love cricket. He goes, you love cricket? He says, yeah, I absolutely love cricket. And of course, I'm Dublin, working class Dublin. and. Neil is not quite working class and not quite Dublin. Mm. And he really didn't, nothing against him, but he really didn't think I'd be into cricket. Yeah. So I said, no, I love it. I used to play it as a kid because my dad bought me a little set because of Ian Bolton. It was all because of Ian Bolton. We just then had something to go on other than niceties, you know, and we could talk all day about cricket and just then it developed into a friendship and then it developed into hanging out and having great fun hanging out. And then it developed into Neil ringing me and saying, I'm having an awful time writing this song for Tom Jones. Do you want to come over and do something on it? So I would. Now, a lot of these songs were never picked up, but a lot of them became Duckworth Lewis songs. Uh, well, the basis of, yeah. or they showed that Neil could work with me and I could work with Neil. And that's really what it was about. Like, I remember we were doing a 
song called Candy Floss for Kylie Minogue. And it was really cool. And I was kind of excited thinking, yeah, she could pick this one up. They didn't get near it, of course. But, you know, I think Candy Floss became uh, Pedal, which is an extra track. <laughs> became an extra track on the first album, like an, an internet track. But, but yeah, that, that was the start of the, of the friendship. And, of course, it took a long time for the whole project to come together. But as I said, we did 11 Modern Antiquities during that time, and he played on all the sessions and hung out. And then the idea came in the pub with Lewis Method and and we started it and Age Revolution was early on and Test Match Special was early on and then I brought in the guts of gentlemen and players and that turned out really well and the next day because that turned out really well the next day Neil went I know he did he went fuck this I'm showing him and he wrote Jiggery Popman I went down the next day and he'd written it yeah he'd actually written it that evening after I left he wrote it about an hour after I left because he rang me and said I've written this song when you come down early in the morning I'll play it to you and I came down the next day and he just played basically the whole song. I did a couple of words in the song, helped out if I remember, but of course it's Neil, you know. And that really kickstarted the whole thing to become, right? We, you know, because we talked about EPs and we talked about six track yeah. release, all this. So we said, look, this is doing an album. So we did. I think the last track we did was Meeting Mr. Me and Dad. I said, why don't we do a Ringo type Yellow Submarine song? And so we did. So it's quite jaunty in that respect but yeah that's how that started then and it was all because of that charity single
phantasmagorical destiny We're going back to Pugwash and we have Fall Down, which is from the Olympus sound. Yes. So Elliot is a fan of this song, isn't he? Charles one of the nicest people I've ever met in the business up there with the XCC guys. And, Neil, you know, just, well, a lot of people I end up continuing to work with or get on with are because they're lovely people, you know. I never get asked about Joe, but Joe's been there a, a good 10, 12 years now because he, what happened was when we were doing the first Duckworth Lewis promo, he saw... This is brilliant, actually. I never tell this story, but he saw <laughs> me, Neil, and Tosh. Tosh was my guitar player, but is now in Divine Comedy. Uh, he saw us doing an acoustic piano version of Mr. Blue Sky on Podge and Rodge, the Irish, you know, there used to be Zig and Zag. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they're great guys, great friends of ours. And they had this big show in Ireland, you know, really good comedy show, talk show. So we were the musical guests that night, and we did, we have to do a cover, obviously. We covered Mr. Blue Sky, and it's it's the best cover we, we ever did. So we nailed it, and it sounded great, and it's all good. And I got a job then, as I was saying off before we came on the podcast air. Uh, I got a job as a DJ on Radio Nova in Dublin after I gave up drinking, drugs, and all this kind of stuff. And it was a brilliant show, the rock era, and we used to get a lot of great guests on. I interviewed a lot of great people. But one of the fans of the show was Joe Elliott, because Joe lives in Ireland, mainly. And he would listen into the show, whatever else, and all that stuff. But he came in as a guest then one week and I was excited to meet him, you know, because his sister loved Def Leppard and all. And of course, who doesn't know all the Def Leppard songs, of course, because they were the biggest band in the world at one stage. And, yeah, you know, but I, my sister was obsessed and I was like, oh, fucking hell, pour some sugar on me. All of that. <laughs> and I used to do this thing, got to know, you know, I used to do this Joe Elliott kind of thing. I, th- I think I did it on air and he rang in one evening and said, I love your impression, he says. Uh, you know, maybe we should do an impression off. And he did it. And I did it. And he said my one was better, was better than his one. But I said to him, did you used to have a little button in the studio when the song wasn't going so well? And he go, right, this isn't a hit, you know, but let's just go, catch no, let's just stick that in. And it's going to be, and it was a joke. And he's such a funny and a really cool guy. He took it really nicely, you know, because it was a joke, you know, because let's face it, they're all brilliant songwriters and musicians but you know when you're a kid I wasn't into Def Leppard but he came in then to visit and he he comes out and he says it's great to meet you finally and all he says he says but I want to show you something you're an ELO fan because he's, he's a huge ELO fan Roy Wood fan yeah. so I brought him in some ELO stuff I had and I gave him some gifts and he was delighted you know and he says but look at this you got to look at this this is amazing and he gets his phone and he shows me me Neil and Tosh doing Mr. Blue Sky on Podge and Raj and he handed me the phone I started looking at it and I went, are you taking the piss or what? Do you not like it or something? And he goes, oh my God, I've just copped on. He says, you're the guy. He didn't know. <laughs> now, I know this sounds weird, but I'd done that before I was given up the drink and all and I was big and healthy. And But when I did a radio show, I lost like six stone in weight. I lost loads. Of, and I, so there's a possibility, you know. But he genuinely didn't know it was me. And then he went, well, he says, that's, I said, I've sent that to all my mates and all the guys in the band. They all know about that version because it's, I was delighted, you know. So he became a friend then. And, and like even at the, one of the last gigs I went to before lockdown, he invited me to come along 
and meet Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick when they were playing with them in the O2. And he treated me like an absolute, I went on my own because I, you know, I live on my own. Yeah. Uh, my girlfriend lives, is walking and living abroad now, and especially with lockdown, it's been terrible. But I just went and traveled into the gig on my own. And he's such a wonderful man. He, he's 10 minutes where he's gone on stage and the guy is still chatting. He's one of those people. He's a genuine rock and roll star. I mean, I've met, and I met Rick, you know, Nielsen, and we had a brilliant time. And so Joe and Joe played Fall Down Off the Air, really, when he had his radio show. He just said, This is he sent me a message saying, I love the Olympus sound, but he says, I can't stop playing Fall Down. I love the track. So he played it a lot on his radio show, which is a classic rock, maybe or something. He's, he's somebody who's been really quite nice to me and and not and he doesn't have to be really, but he's a fan of the music. Thanks, Joe.
now we have the uh, Duckworth Lewis method and, and Judd's paradox. And before we go into Judd's paradox, what was the, the spark of doing another album with Neil? It's funny thinking back on it now because it's, it's it's coming up on ten years. We would have started recording the follow up. I was never assumed we'd do a follow up. It was never assumed we'd do six songs about cricket, let alone twenty five or thirty, whatever we did. But the amazing thing was, it was such a success. We were speechless. And of course, it took Neil's management and all of his crew by surprise. Of course, I had to take all of that burden on myself because I had no management and I had no one that it was me. Yeah. So all Pugwash used up was me and Dara, who was the guy in the company at the time. But that was coming to an end after an incredibly, no, I won't say drug fuel, but an incredibly forget, forgettable yet wonderful five years yeah. because it was just, it was madness. We had such a brilliant time, but it was just totally over the top. But that was coming to a natural end because we tried everything, we did everything. But So on the second Duckwood Lewis album, I was totally on my own. And because the first one, as I said, had been such a success, we kind of said, you know, we could do another, you know. It's, it's in us, you know. And especially when we got the Ivor Novello nomination. Yeah. That was a real statement to the fact that we'd done something very special. And we kind of said, well, should we and could we? And I actually don't even remember just sitting down with Neil and talking about a second. I think we just started recording some songs. I honestly don't remember this particular day we spoke about it, but because he had his studio set up in Dublin, Neil, and he was getting quite prolific on the Pro Tools. And he's a, you know, he's a, he's a perfectionist, so when he took on Pro Tools, he wanted to get it right. So he was in the early days of Pro Tools. But that's what happened then. It became very long demo sessions because he wanted to get the sound right there and we could move it on to a studio so a lot of the stuff on the second album we'd, we'd kind of put down as demos a fair bit of it I did all the drums on the demos which I really loved doing uh, and the demos I think the demos should come out one day definitely because they're very classy and they're very good they're great um, what you call the liner notes or whatever I don't know they're kind of a great attachment to the original record but uh, super deluxe edition super deluxe edition <laughs> yeah it was a top 40 albums you know might as well bill it as that but of course in us we wouldn't have done it it's the old story with anybody you see getting interviewed about following up something that was a success or that really went down well with the public you won't make another one if you really think it's not going to be good enough so we never at one stage thought it wasn't going to be good enough because we wrote really good songs and it's what it's what's the way the public perceive you and it's the way the press perceive you and it's mainly the press because a lot of people end up saying, that's a great record. I love it. You know, and they kind of get, you can hear them doubting themselves because of what they've read in the press. So even though the press was really quite strong for the second one, there was a couple of ones where they said, oh, here they go again. You know, it's hard that the world was overrun with fucking cricket songs. <laughs> one of the notable things on, on Judd's Paradox is, is the narration by Stephen Fry. So how, how did that come about? D does Neil know Stephen? Or was well, Neil knows loads of people, but Neil is the most uh, un-Hollywood bears you'll ever meet. So Neil has people's... So Neil's phone is full of credible A-listers, but he, he'd never ring them or contact them about anything because he just wouldn't. It's not in his nature. Now, I'm not saying if I had that list, I'd be ringing them at 3 o'clock in the morning. But if I was still drinking, I could. Yeah. But of course, in your sanity, no. So what happened was, on the first record, Stephen Fry heard, heard us on BBC or something, and he tweeted about us. I think that tweet alone got us into the charts with that record because it was, went down to millions of Twitter followers and no one had heard about it. So it really helped us. And 
Yeah, Neil had Stephen Fry's details in his phone. And when it came to Judd's Paradox, which I wrote the piano part for at a pug wash session, and I, I have videoed myself just at a writing it. I put it on uh, Facebook a few months back just to, because I found out my phone. I got Joey, my drummer, to film it because I came up with this melody that I really liked at the piano in the studio, and I never would remember because I don't play piano. I, I play piano when I sit at it, then I don't play it. So I can't remember stuff. So I got them to film me. So I brought it to the session, and Neil really liked it. And Neil had this piece of narration. He had this kind of load of poetry written based around Judd's Paradox, which was a film or something. I can't remember where is that. And we just put it together. And it came this track I really, really loved. But it really needed narration. And Neil did it, I think, on a demo or something like that. Hmm. And I just said, look, you should get the big ones out with this one because it's, it's a really top piece. You know, we're doing a string arrangement for it. And even, which we did in Snap Studios in London. I says, look, you've got you've got Stephen Fry's number here. Let's just let's just get your Natalie and the Neil's manager. Let's get Natalie to contact Stephen, and she did. And he was in London when we were there. He was doing some voiceover work uh, for some ads, I think it was, in this little studio. And uh, we sat there waiting for him to finish off his voiceover stuff. And then he just said, "Oh, hello, guys," and he spoke to us through the window. And then he just. Sweet is the sound. I remember he did it. He did it once, and it was really good. But of course, Neil was right. He wasn't here on the track, sadly. But we knew how to. We could chop her up, and we knew how to meet her and stuff. And he did it then. I remember he pretty much did the second take, perfect. I think we fixed one line. Speed was. That was it. He came out, said hello, took some pictures. He was lovely, and it's it's a beautiful. It's, I just love it. It's, I'm very proud of the song. It's kind of the most mature. Bit of music I've ever been involved with, you know. So there's so many things I love about it. There's a thing in the middle with the big orchestra break where the cello player at the session, she hit this thing on the top of her cello, I think. Or no, maybe it was a big old bass and it hit the really low E, I think it was. So you hear that on the track and it really it gives me goosebumps whenever I hear it. It's beautiful because I heard it in the studio. So yeah, I do love that track and I'm glad you're playing it. Sweet is the sound as leather bound The well-timed willow strikes Mild the applause that cheers the cause Of the bat and the ball alike Soft is the ground where can be found A young man sound asleep And old is the game that shares its name with the insect at his feet. How could he
The bourgeoisie bat, the proletariat, toil in the field all day. I should be incensed by what it represents, and yet it's a damned good game. And although I hoped that the peasants revolt and cast off the yoke of oppression, perhaps Europe's millions can storm the pavilions after the afternoon session. How could he know the lengths to which they go to claim his soul? Next, we have Just So You Know from Play This Intimately as if among friends from 2015. And you've been talking that um, many people just associate you with some of the songs where the the melody or the, the lyrics at face value were bright and breezy. Were yeah. Songs like this show, you know, more of an, an intro, introspective, darker side at times. Yeah, well, I, I've been coursed in a way through my life with relationships that haven't been black and white, long distance and other reasons. That's all we can say. That seems to, it just seems to be the cards I've been dealt. I mean, I haven't sought out people that I've fallen in love with or, you know, been very close to. There's been issues between us being together, you know. that it, mm. I suppose it's the world of music where you travel yeah, and you get, people get to see you in places and then they go, oh, I liked him or I liked that. And then they get you online because online can bring you together. Before, yeah, the 70s or 80s, you could go somewhere and someone would say, oh, I liked him or I liked that. But you'd never see them again. You know, and it would just be teens lost. And But nowadays, people can find you. So people can find you, and I can find people, and you can go look for, oh, I liked her, and she, she liked you. Of course, that's the way the world is now. We live our lives online, and we do everything this way. And... It could work out for lots of people, and of course, for lots of people, it doesn't work out. And songs like Just So You Know, it's kind of reminding people or reminding someone very close to me that I'm here and there's signs every night that I'm here and look up there and you can see that and I can see that. You know, the moon is there. You've got the same. I think America might have the same moon. And I tend to write kind of lost love songs or, or difficult love songs now like that. You know, it's not really I love you, you love me. 
hallelujah, let's fuck. You know, it's not really that kind of thing <laughs> in so many ways. It's all kind of, right, how can we get through this time without seeing each other, but still be okay? You know, that. So just so you know, I think as a, like there's things like the Campanologist, uh, the Campanologist tune, Serenades of Summer, which is like, you know, bell ringing, because it was bell ringing where we were at one particular time. And then I know my heart is in June, which is where I wrote the song probably. My head is in December because we met in December. Those lyrics, that's what they equate to. It's nice when they work. And I remember playing that to Jeff Lynn uh, because I brought a rough mix of Jeff's when I was in LA. Because I got over to see Jeff a few times. It's still a dream. I can't tell you how much of a dream that is. <laughs> she got to Jeff Lynn's and hang out. But I did. I was very lucky. To, but I brought him a copy of the album at that time. And he wanted to listen to some tracks. We went into the studio and he blasted. And I said, look, play that one and play that one. And I remember sitting sitting in his little armchair thing and he's at the desk listening intently and and the bit in Just So You Know goes into the Just So You Know the, the James Bondy bit which it's not a Jeff Lynn moment at all but I know as a Jeff Lynn fan it's the kind of a progression he loved it's that kind of thing and he just looked over at me you know with his son his Ray-Bans on you know his Ray, aviator <laughs> And he just, yeah. at the corner of it, I could see his eye, and he just kind of winked. He did a Jeff Lynn wink. <laughs> when I did that chord change, and I went, oh, that's cool. And uh, just things like that I'll never forget, you know. I mean, Jeff giving you the nod and the wink during a song of yours is quite special. And I remember doing it during that song, and uh, I went, okay, that's that's a special memory. And so, yeah, I think I, I as well on that song, I think I nailed sonically the track really well. Guy Massey did a great job on that record, but it's one of our most polarizing records, really, because we were having a very tough time making it. And we did it all in conk. Oh, yeah. Which is great memories. And of course, Ray Davis appears on one track with Andy Partridge. Uh, Andy did his bit separate. I asked Andy to do a separate bit just to get him on a track with Ray Davis. But I was in the, I was in the studio with Ray doing the vocal, and, and Ray says, Thomas, can you, you're going to have to move out of vocal, dude. You're, you're too big, he says, to be in here with me. And Ray is one of those London people who just says it as it is. I know a lot of London people like that. You say things like, you're getting fatter, aren't you? And I go, yeah, I am getting fatter. Fuck you. You know, but they're kind of, there's a lot of English people I know like that. There's a certain type of English person like that. And London seems to be the way. You know, it was just great fun. Ray Davis coming in to listen to your stuff. He can't and then sing on a song. It's one of the last things he ever did. Well, ever did as a guest on anybody's record, for sure. You know, and I'm quite proud of that, you know. We also had a brilliant night out with him in the Prince of Wales. His local kind of, oh, what a night that was. Well, but we went to see him. And we literally sat and did the whole Village Green album as four-piece acapella with Ray. Oh. And I remember doing Big Sky and Ray did the Big Sky bit. I mean, these are things you dream of. The, the spoken bit and you're going yeah. to <laughs> He did it. And it still gives, it gives me, because then there was big talk then, because what happened afterwards, which sadly didn't happen, Ray was going to do a tour for Village Green, the, the 50th anniversary. His health kind of deteriorated a little bit, you know, that kind of thing. But his plan was to tour it, but have a, a stock band in Europe to be his backing band with loads of special guests. So he'd only sing three or four songs, maybe. Yeah. So every town, every major city, he'd have a special guest and they'd sing a few songs. We'd be the, so Pogors were going to be his backing band in Europe and the Jayhawks were going to be his band in America. 
That was the plan. And it got to quite, not the 11th hour, but it got to a long way down the line of planning. And we learned all the songs. It's so sad, really. And that was one of those things that would have been such a dream, obviously. Jesus. And it would have been a dream for fans anyway. I mean, even if we it would. Had told you we weren't going to be the band at the end, I still would have gone to that gig and loved every minute of it. Of course. So that was a sad thing. But that was one of those great moments. You know, we were just hanging and things were happening. And that was a special night. Just 
so we were we were held together by other forces at that time as a band because there were so many great things happening for us. But personally, even though we're all the greatest of friends, we're all old friends and we're all dear friends. We weren't making a penny out of Pugwash. Yeah. And we were breaking even everywhere we went. And, you know, coming back from a three-month tour of America in your 40s, where we all have our own problems health-wise and everything. And some people have families, of course, and, you know, marriages or whatever, and kids. And, and you're coming back and the, the wives or girlfriends or whatever are saying, where's the rent? And we're all pulling our pockets out, you know? So it just, so we had to make, we joy. Well, I had to make the decision in the end because I was the leader, bollocks. So, of course, we had a bit of a fall now for a few months because I had to say, that's it. But, of course, Tosh had already joined Dwayne Comedy. Yeah. So that, to me, was, you know, well, you know, I don't even need an excuse now. That's obviously going to happen. So that's great. Well done, Tosh. But, of course, I still had to make the decision and they still, make me, they still made me feel guilty about it. But it had to be made. But I wasn't great about it either. I didn't handle it very well. I just said, ah, fuck this. But because we're friends, it's not long-lasting. It's just the way life is. That's why Silver Lake became became a kind of a solo record. That's what I was saying about people saying, oh, Thomas Walsh, no. <laughs> if, if Pugwash is known for 20 years, it might as well sell me an extra 1,000 copies or something than change my name all of a sudden to who I am, for God's sake, you know? So I, I'm, always, I'm always introduced as Pugwash as Thomas Walsh or whatever, you know. Or, it may not be sort of fashionable chart wise but your sound is now for me sort of timeless in terms of those songs don't date they're just classic classic songs and and what are you like is is a case in point it, a song like that will just live on just based on its own strengths well thanks Jason that's nice to hear I mean the process of Silver Lake was quite was quite difficult as well but you know LA difficult I'll take ahead of Dublin difficult any day of the week you know because if you're having a difficult album Making a difficult album in Dublin, you're gonna walk out to the pissings of rain and then <laughs> feel extra shit and go home to no heating and coldness and darkness. And if you're in LA and having a pretty shitty day, you walk out to 30 degree heat and a pool. Jason Faulkner, who did the record with me, he just changed over Pro Tools like two weeks before I arrived. And he'll even admit, and I, I know at the time he did admit it as well, it was a stupid thing to do because you cannot just start using a new Pro Tools system without it being bugged. I broke down the first day of recording. Jason was putting down, I think, a drum pattern, a drum part, and it said not enough memory, memory full, and it was 11 seconds into the first drum take, and it was a brand new Pro Tools system. So he spent the next three days on the phone to Pro Tools support. Now, it didn't make for an enjoyable time for him. It was a nightmare. But big decision changing them Pro Tools. But we then had to make a record in three weeks because it was kind of four weeks originally. But we lost a week to glitches and shit. And, you know, a full day for Jason would be 11 to 7 or 8, which is a long day because he's doing so much. But I'd ask him to do it because I wanted to just write the songs, play the acoustic, play a bit of electric, bit of drums, just bits and pieces, do all the vocals. And I wanted him to do everything else. That's what I asked him to do. And he said, yeah. And we agreed on price and everything. And it was all good. And, but it got difficult because it's a very tough thing to do to get 11 tracks out in that time. And in the end, we got 12. But the, the worst thing was, the, the worst was to come because he was going straight out of the road with Beck after we finished it. So I needed it to be mixed, you know, which again was part of the whole thing. 
But of course, to find time for him to mix it was a nightmare. So it became me being stressed on this part of the world and Jason being stressed that part of the world of being on the road with Beck. And of course, Beck could announce 10 more dates. And, you know, that was, that was what happened. So Silver Lake got out that year quite late in the year, but it got out. We did it. But it was, it was, it strained me and Jason's relationship for a bit, you know, because we had to, had to force, you know, but it was what was agreed, you know. That's what happens with people who are talented like Jason and they, they get a lot of work and they do a lot of shit. Sometimes they do too much shit. But anyway, we got there in the end and that track, it ended up being, I loved the chorus of it. The chorus was exactly how I envisaged. Visaged, sorry, what it would be, and that's and, and Matt Berry fell in love with that track when he heard it. So I ended up doing a video with Matt in his back garden. Uh, I just flew over for the day or two, uh, went up with the lodgings people, the label released it, and we just hung out with Matt for the day and GoPro in the back garden, had a bit of fun. So, uh, yeah, and like Mark Radcliffe would play that a lot on Radcliffe McConey, and he'd say, he'd say, Well, this, this song has that chord change in the chorus. That is like killer. And he made, he played it one day and I never thought of it because it's great when people notice these things and you don't notice them. But it was the bit where it goes, what do you like? Ooh. Then it goes, oh, what do you like? Anyway, that bit. And uh, I liked that bit, you know, when I was writing, I said, that's cool to go there. But Radcliffe <laughs> was pointing it out on the radio show. It's this bit here and he played it and I played the bit. I was like, that's really cool. And I've written the new one pretty much it's it's written but i'm in a bit of a quandary about how to do it and how i could fund it and people have already helped out with funding and stuff but it, i ended up getting evicted during lockdown and i couldn't have done it without my fans i couldn't have moved just couldn't have done it very lucky i did great so so you've got the vinyl re-release of 11 modern antiquities Pugwash material is now on streaming. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, you, you'll be able to take steps to start recording the new album when when it's possible. Well, this is the thing. My my other half, she's uh, she's on a little holiday at the moment, and I love chatting through stuff with her because she's a great soundboard, very talented. And the thing is, she, she's the only person I talk to anyway, so I have to have somebody there. But I'm lucky; she's very good at all this planning and preparation. She's brilliant. She's the complete opposite of me because she likes to write things down <laughs> and plan them. We're going to have a chat about how to approach uh, starting because I have a great studio I found here because I live quite outside Dublin now and it's towards the north of Ireland. So I'm halfway between Belfast and Dublin, a place called County Loud. I found this incredible studio in the mountains of Trohada kind of around me. Gorgeous place. Incredible gear, everything. I really want to just make the record there. I brought Neil up to have a look at it as well. On the first, when the first lockdown was lifted last year, we went out for a day and drove up and had a look. And he says, yeah, it's great. Perfect. So that's what I'd love to do. But I could end up having to go somewhere to do it because finances may dictate, you know. Mm. So I have a lot of ideas. I mean, my health hasn't been great. I trying to get through a lot of health issues, but fuck it, you know. It, it, pfft, might as well fucking collapse on a plane as collapsing my fucking house, who cares? <laughs> you know, I, like, I could be on a stage anywhere, I don't care. You have to be going somewhere, doing something. To finish, let's play What Are You Like? Thank you so much for your time, Thomas. It's been fantastic to talk to you, and you've got so many stories weaved in with your brilliant songwriting, and it's great to know that plans are afoot to record a new album, which is 
is always the most important thing is is getting uh, new music out there. So um, thank you again. Thanks, Jason, so much. It's a pleasure to be on that list of incredible legends of the music world that you've got together. So well done, you. And uh, I'm happy to to be here to chat and to, to kind of talk at you a lot of times because I do go off and I'll come back sometimes. But uh, but also yes, new music is so important because it's 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 almost new blood as well inside you, and, and you know. It, you need to get pride in you again about your work because a lot of times you can live off the past stuff. I'm lucky to have a decent catalog, but I want some new stuff in there to kind of go, okay, I can still do this. And, you know, so hopefully it'll be as good as others or whatever or better. And uh, please God, it'll happen within the year, calendar year, you know, so that's what I'm hoping. Okay, man. Cheers, Thomas. It's a pleasure. Bye-bye. Great stuff. Sweet soon. for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online 
It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you. Thank you.